You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, if you're listening to the podcast or to this CD, then you know this, notice right away this is a little bit different than what we normally do. And the reason for that is that this last Sunday, our technical difficulties kept us from actually recording the introduction to the book of Philippians. And that's the next series that we're starting. And uh, I didn't want to just start in with verse 3 of the book of Philippians, the first uh, that third verse in the first chapter, because understanding and having a background of information about the book of Philippians is essential to really appreciating this book and the relationship that Paul had with the Philippian church. So what I want to do this morning is I want to uh, just kind of go over some of the background that I shared on Sunday morning with our congregation, and hopefully it'll be a benefit to you, and, and hopefully this will help sort of set the context for the book of Philippians. Whenever I begin a new series, um, people in the congregation come up to me quite often and ask, uh, what book is next? What, what book are you going to preach through next? And, and they want to know where we're going after we get done, and that happened toward the end of the book of Acts. And... Um, I don't mind that question. Sometimes I, I even know the answer to it. And this time I did because a couple of years ago I decided we'd preach through the book of Philippians when we were done with the book of Acts. And uh, there are a lot of things that go into making that decision, a lot of considerations to make in making the decision of what book do we want to preach through next. It's it's not just whatever book I want to preach through or whatever book I, I feel like I want to study. Um, there's books that I've wanted to study and preach through for 10 years that we haven't got to yet, like Galatians and, and others. But we normally look at, you know, wh- where's our congregation at? What issues are we facing? What type of doctrinal issues have come up recently that need to be addressed? Or maybe what tor- type of subjects and doctrinal issues have uh, not come up that need to? And that was actually what lured me into preaching on the book of Acts, is I wanted to deal with subjects like miracles and tongues and and prophets and uh, and the resurrection and, and things like that as a major theme and those obviously came up in the book of Acts as we were going through the exposition of that book and a couple years ago I, th- I thought you know a good book to follow Acts 28 with would be the book of Philippians for this reason that when we get to the end of Acts 28 we see the Apostle Paul in prison he's in a Roman confinement in his own rented quarters for for two years in Caesarea and then for a a period of time between Caesarea and Rome and then for two years in the city of Rome for a total of about five years from 58 AD to 63 AD. And so I thought, well, what would be good to end the book of Acts with would be to follow it up with an epistle that was written from prison during Paul's imprisonment. Now, if you were with us through the end of the book of Acts, then you know that that leaves us with basically four options. We could do Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, or Philippians. I didn't want to do Ephesians because I just finished preaching through that five years ago, and that's still fresh in many people's minds. Um, also, our youth are going through Ephesians right now, and I think they'd have a conniption if they found out we were going to be doing that on Sunday mornings. Colossians is a bit too much like Ephesians uh, to give us the variety that I'm hoping for, and Philemon is a bit too short and not really written to a whole church and dealing with church-type issues. And that leaves us with Philippians. Now, Philippians is written to a church. It's longer. It shows us the heart of the Apostle Paul in the midst of his imprisonment. So I determined, well, that would probably be, I'd probably really fit the bill in a lot of different ways. So that's what we determined to do, is to go through the book of Philippians. And it's an added bonus since 
having looked at Paul's character, his his life, his style of ministry, his integrity, how he handled affliction, his sufferings, all of that stuff is fresh in our minds. And so it's great to just go into a book that really has all of that on the front end of it. We have all of that context now. We really have an appreciation for Paul. And now we get to see him talk about those things in his own words. So that's why we're looking at the book of Philippians. Now, I have to confess to you, introducing a book is not my favorite thing to do. <clears throat> I'd much rather sort of jump into a text and just just go at it. But we do need this background information. We do need some of the context. And so that's what I want to give you. And I'm going to do three things. The first thing I want to do is I want to uh, talk to you a little bit about how the church began. We're going to look at Acts 16 and remind ourselves of some of the things. It's been a couple years since as a congregation we went through that. Remind ourselves of what happened in the city of Philippi, how that church came into being. Then I want to look at the first two verses of the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And then the last thing is I want to give you sort of an overview of the book and speak of some of the things that the book talks about and some of the themes, the characteristics and concepts in the book in sort of a general fashion. So in order to do that, will you turn, if you have your Bibles handy, turn back to the book of Acts chapter 16, and we're going to look at how the church began. The book of Acts chapter 16, and we'll see how the, the church in Philippi began. It was started on Paul's second missionary journey. We start out chapter 16, finding out in the first five verses that Paul, after the Jerusalem Council, determined to go back through the regions that they had visited on their first missionary journey and to visit those churches and deliver to them the decrees of the apostles in Jerusalem regarding the issue of circumcision. So they did that through the cities of Galatia, to whom Paul had already written the Galatian epistle at the end of chapter 14, beginning of chapter 15. Then Paul determined that he was going to continue on in some new evangelistic campaigns, new evangelistic territory, and he headed west. Verse 6 says they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian regions, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Something happened there with Paul tried to go, turn left, basically, and head south, and go into the regions of Asia, probably to the city of Ephesus. I think Paul knew that Ephesus was a strategic city. He wanted to go there and establish a missionary center, like he did on his third missionary journey, spend some time there, but the Spirit of God did not permit him to do that. How that happened, we we don't know, but it, it's just kind of an interesting verse. The Spirit of God didn't let him down in there. Paul tried to turn right, go north into Bithynia. Verse 8 says, they came to Mysia, and then they came down to Troas, because the Spirit of God didn't allow them to go into Asia, the Spirit of God didn't allow them to go into Bithynia. So they arrived at Troas, on the coast of the Aegean Sea, across the Aegean Sea is basically modern-day Europe. It's Macedonia and Achaia, the cities of Philippi, Corinth, Athens, Thessalonica, are all on the other side of the Aegean Sea. I don't think it ever occurred to Paul to actually go across the Aegean Sea. And it wasn't until verse 10 of chapter 16 says, we had seen When he had seen a vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I don't think it was until Paul got that vision of the Macedonian man saying, come and help us, that Paul actually considered going into the regions of Macedonia. There's a couple of interesting things to note here about verse 10, and actually these first 10 verses of chapter 16. One of them is, it's interesting to note that Paul's arrival in Europe and preaching in the city of Philippi was a result of some supernatural activity. The Spirit of God didn't permit him to go into Asia. The Spirit of God didn't permit him to go into Bithynia. He was sort of hedged in on both sides and driven to the city of Troas. And here's the second thing. It was in the city of Troas that he met Dr. Luke. Because verse 10 is the first time in the book of Acts that we see the pronoun we. 
and immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. It was in the city of Troas that Dr. Luke joins the Apostle Paul's ministry team. And so they travel across the Aegean Sea in obedience to this vision. They arrive in the city of Philippi, and outside the city on a Sabbath day is where the people, the Jews and Jewish converts, were meeting for worship. Not a lot of Jews in the city of Philippi, not a synagogue in the city of Philippi. They were outside the city by the uh, Ganges River. Uh, worshiping there was a, a woman named Lydia. She was a convert to Judaism. Verse 14 says, this is Paul's first encounter, actually his first convert in Europe, was Lydia. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So that was Paul's first encounter, was this, was this Jewish convert woman. Uh, scripture says that she was a seller of purple fabrics. That was a very wealthy uh, income, a very wealthy business. She was a wealthy businesswoman, evidenced from her, from the fact that uh, she had a large home that she was staying in, and she invited, this time it would have been Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Dr. Luke, to stay in that home with her, and they actually used Lydia's house as a base of operations, and it also became the house out of which the church in Philippi met after that. We see that at the end of, the end of chapter 16. The second person that Paul met was the slave girl. In verse 16, they were going to the place of prayer, and the slave girl who had a spirit of divination by which she brought her master's much profit. She was, she was following along after Paul, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Verse 18, she continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very moment. Now, I think it's safe to conclude that not only did Paul cast the demon out of that slave girl, but that he also led her to faith in Christ. I don't think that Paul would exercise a demon from a girl and then just walk away and leave her to her own designs. I think he actually led her to faith in Christ and taught her the way of truth and way of life, and that she became a believer and a member of that early church in Philippi. Well, as a result of the demon disappearing, so did the prophet of the masters who were using that spirit of divination for their own uh, wealth creation. They got angry. They drug Paul and Silas down to the marketplace where the chief magistrates were, and they took the robes off them, ordered them to be beaten. So Paul and Silas were beaten, and they were thrown into jail in Acts chapter 16. And that is when occurs probably the most familiar part in all of the book of Acts chapter 16, is Paul's encounter with the Philippian jailer. It's about midnight. They're singing praise and hymns to God. Uh, an earthquake comes to the city of Philippi, shakes the prison doors off their hinges, unloosens all the shackles of the prisoners. They're all freed up to escape, and they could if they wanted to. It seems that Paul and Silas restrained the prisoners from escaping. Um, the Philippian jailer came down, thought they had all rushed out. He was about ready to throw himself on the sword when Paul said, No, no, we're all here. Don't worry about it. Just and Don't kill yourself. And the Philippian jailer rushed in, fell down before Paul and Silas, and said, What must I do to be saved? Now, his question implies not only that he need, had a knowledge of his sin, but that he also had an awareness that he needed a Savior, and he must have known that Paul and Silas were messengers of that salvation. So Paul and Silas, or Paul said to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. The Philippian jailer did, along with his whole household. They all believed. After that, Paul baptized them. Then the Philippian jailer, just like Lydia, once God had opened his heart, he opened his home. He brought Paul and Silas in, washed their wounds, set food before them, and exercised hospitality. An amazing grace of God that God did that work in the Philippian jailer. So those are the three 
first converts in the city of Philippi on the continent of Europe. Lydia, a slave girl, and this Roman Gentile jailer. Now, I just want you to notice the diversity of that early church. You have a businesswoman who's very wealthy, a convert to Judaism. So she's upper class. Then you have lower class, which is this slave girl. She is about as low as you can possibly get. And then you have about middle class, probably this Philippian jailer. You have upper middle and lower class people in the in the church. You also have a convert to Judaism, a formerly deep, demon-possessed girl, and the Philippian jailer, who was probably involved in some sort of paganism, idolatry, idol worship, Caesar worship, emperor worship, something like that, as his normal root of of uh, religion and idolatry, and he gets saved. What, what kind of diversity is that? That's incredible diversity. And I think if you were to look around at an average church today, you would see that kind of diversity. Yet, And one of the messages of the book of Philippians is this oneness, this unity that we have, even in the midst of all of that type of diversity. You know, Jewish men in Paul's day were incredibly arrogant, prideful. And uh, a Jewish man, actually, in the morning when he woke up, part of his prayers, he would pray, Lord, I thank you that I am not a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. And it's interesting to note that the first three converts of the city of Philippi for the Philippian church were a slave, a Gentile, and a woman. The very people that Jewish men despised and looked down upon were the very people upon which the church in Philippi was built. Okay, now you can turn back to the book of Philippians chapter 1, and what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first two verses there, kind of go through them. And I uh, just want to explain some things here about these first two verses, and this will sort of help introduce and set us up. It's it, it's just a typical introduction by the Apostle Paul. He says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus and the Lord Christ Jesus. It's the first two verses. Notice that Paul addresses the book from Paul and Timothy. Now, Timothy is not involved in writing the book. He has no part in the writing of the book, which is evident because the rest of the book, Paul uses the, the personal pronoun we, or sorry, I or me or mine um, or my, for instance, in verse 3. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance. So it's not, it's not that Timothy is involved in writing this book, but Paul does introduce Timothy at the beginning because Timothy was with Paul in Rome at the end of those two years. And Timothy was involved in Paul's relationship with the Philippian church. The Philippians knew Timothy. They loved Timothy. They trusted Timothy, respected Timothy. And so Timothy, you're going to see, is going to come back into the book of Philippians in chapter 2 and play a significant role in uh, what in the relationship that exists between Paul and the Philippians. So then Paul describes Timothy and himself as bondservants, douloi. We're bondservants of Christ. And, and that's Paul's mindset. That is the humble mindset. The word douloi was not the word that you used to describe somebody who was the keeper of the house or a maid or a butler. It was used to describe the lowest of the lowest of the bondservants. It was used to describe somebody who was at the utter and total and complete disposal of their master. And that's how Paul viewed himself in relationship to Jesus Christ, as at the utter and total and complete disposal of his master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what you see in Philippians is this mindset of a bondservant that just comes to the forefront in, in every chapter and in every way. Um, Paul considered being a doulos, a, a douloi, a bondservant, as the highest calling of the Christian life. And friends, do you understand that that's what being a bondservant is? Do you understand that you never you never get promoted out of being a bondservant? You know what promotion is in the kingdom of God? Promotion in the kingdom of God is being given more responsibility. You never get, you never get elevated past being a bondservant. You never get taken out of that role. In the corporate world of our day, it's 
people think, well, I can, I'll serve in this capacity and hopefully I'll reach a point where I have other people serving me and, and I'm not serving them. It's never that way in the kingdom of God. You get a promotion in the kingdom of God, it just means you're given more people to serve. You're given more responsibility. You're given more weight in what it is that God has called you to do. That's, that's your role. That's a bondservant. Paul describes him and Tim, himself and Timothy as bondservants. And then Paul says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Saints is the word, from the word sanctified or set apart. That's what you are in Christ. You're, you're a saint. You're sanctified, set apart. And we are in Christ Jesus. It's being in Christ Jesus that makes us saints, that sets us apart. God has set us apart unto himself in Christ. And then Paul says, in Philippi, and I love this truth, they are in Christ and they are in Philippi. Being in Christ is the realm of their spiritual life, their spiritual sphere in which they live. Being in Philippi is the realm of their physical life, the physical realm in which they live. And it's both of those, friends. We are, for myself, I'm, I'm in Christ and I'm in Kootenai. And by the way, that's the source of 90% of my problems, the fact that I'm not only in Christ, but I'm also in Kootenai. In other words, I'm chained to this terrestrial globe. And Paul is going to remind them that in later on in chapter 3 that not only that um, they are citizens in Philippi, they are in Philippi, but also they are citizens of heaven. And their citizenship is in heaven. And although they are in Philippi, their citizenship is also in heaven, from which we wait for the Savior who will transform our lowly body into conformity to the body of his glory. So then Paul includes in this in verse 1, the overseers and deacons. That's kind of an interesting inclusion there to all the saints who are in Philippi, in Christ Jesus in Philippi, along with or with or beside or including the deacons and the bishops or episcopoi, the, the elders and deacons. Those are the two offices in the New Testament church that were recognized. They're given um, leadership qualifications and qualifications for their selection and appointment are given in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. And here you have, even as early as 63 A.D., these two offices recognize the elders or the bishops, as some of your translations might have it, bishops, the elders and deacons. Elders is episkopoi. It's a word that's used synonymously with presbyteros and poimen, which are the words for elder and pastor, respect, uh, respectively. They all three serve to denote the same office, the same function, the same authority, the same ministry in the New Testament. They're used... Actually, all three of those words are used together to speak of one man or one group of men in 1 Peter chapter 5 and in Acts chapter 20. And so a, an elder is a pastor, is a, is a bishop, is an overseer, whatever title you want to give to him, that is the office. And they were given the charge of the spiritual charge in the early church and the congregations of shepherding and feeding and teaching and leading the flock. And their job was to oversee the spiritual nurture and the spiritual direction and the church discipline and all of the issues regarding relating to the word of God and prayer. Diakonoi, or the deacons, were something different. The prototype of the deacons are, are given to us in Acts chapter 6, where you have men like Stephen and Philip being selected to serve the food to the widows in the church and oversee the benevolent ministry in order that the elders might give their time to the teaching, to the word of God, and to prayer. And so they really oversaw the physical or benevolent, the needs of the congregation, so that between the elders and the deacons, you had both the physical and the spiritual needs of the congregation met. Now, you have disaster in a church any time that elders and deacons get mixed up or switched around. Anytime you have deacons functioning in elder capacity, overseeing spiritual issues, governing the church, doing church discipline, 
or any time you have elders who are serving in a deacon capacity and out fixing screen doors for little old ladies instead of serving the Word of God and teaching and preaching and overseeing the spiritual direction of the flock. Anytime you get those two roles confused, you have disaster on your hands. It's a recipe for disaster. And so you have to keep them separate. You have to understand what their functions are, what their roles are, and handle them appropriately. Elders and deacons are included here, and, and this is kind of unique because if you were to look at all of the rest of Paul's epistles, you can go back to the book of Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, look at all of those epistles, and you'll find that this is the only epistle that Paul writes where he specifically names elders and deacons in the church in the introduction. It's not because the other churches didn't have elders and deacons. And a lot of people ask, why? Why, why did Paul include it here? Why specifically address elders and deacons? And a lot of ink has been spilt over this, and I'm not going to spill any more ink, only to suggest that I think that in doing this, the Apostle Paul is, is calling them out and reminding them of their own function and their own status with the rest of the saints. In other words, it's to all the saints with the elders and deacons. And if there was any hint of spiritual pride, spiritual superiority, spiritual one-upmanship, in the congregation at Philippi, if there was any idea or any thoughts in any of the leadership's minds that they were somehow better than these other men and the other saints, this one phrase from the beloved apostle would put all of that to rest, and it would remind them, ah, oh, yeah, elders and deacons. After all, we are just saints with the rest of God's people. There's no two classes, and this is not to minimize the responsibility or the authority that elders and deacons are given. It's not to minimize the spiritual oversight that an elder gives or the responsibility that he has because it's Solomon we ought to respect those men for their name's sake and for their their work's sake and submit to them and, and look out for them and and love them and honor them and give them double honor when they work hard at preaching and teaching all of that is true and good but it should also remind us that they are after all just saints with the rest of us it, it's the elders who are among us who exercise this authority and what's unfortunate here is that this very word, episkopos, bishop, has been used by some denominations and some groups to create a whole hierarchical structure of church governments and leadership with bishops and super bishops and archbishops and grand poobah bishops and all of that stuff that goes on. And that's really sad because the opposite is Paul's intention. His intention is to remind us that we are all, after all, just saints. Verse 2. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, those just a standard greeting by the Apostle Paul, grace, charis, from the Greek. It's a standard greeting that you would find in a lot of correspondence written within the Gentile and Roman world. Peace to you is a is a word that you would use to, to, to you would see introducing a lot of correspondence within the Hebrew world. So in the Jewish realm, peace to you, shalom, was a common greeting in the in the Greek and Roman and Gentile world, grace to you is a common greeting. And so Paul combines both of those two, grace and peace. It's grace that comes before peace. You have to have the grace of God before you can experience the peace of God. But Paul takes those common greetings of grace to you and peace to you, charis and shalom, and by saying that they come from the Lord Jesus Christ and from God the Father, he puts a whole new Christian meaning and significance on them. And you'll kind of see this later in the book of Philippians because you can't go through chapter 2 and 3 without understanding grace, without seeing grace all over it. And chapter 4 is all about the peace of God. So we'll leave those two concepts for now, but you'll see them develop throughout the rest of the epistle. Now what I want to do is I want to give you an, an overview, kind of, of the whole book. Um, let me offer to you some of the characteristics 
One of the characteristics of the book of Philippians is the incredible love that the apostle has for these people. I think if the apostle Paul had picked a favorite church, it would have been the church of Philippi. Um, I'm not sure that he picked favorites, but if he did, the Philippians would have been one of his favorite churches or his favorite church. You, you just see over and over and over in this epistle this incredible love relationship that the Apostle Paul has with these people. Uh, you see it in verse chapter 4, verse 1, for instance, where it, it's almost sticky. It's almost so sweet and syrupy. Chapter 4, verse 1, My beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. You see, that love is just, it, it, it's all over this epistle, the love that the Apostle Paul has. It's also interesting to note in this, those first two verses that we just looked at, that Paul doesn't mention his apostleship. He doesn't come on the scene and remind them, look, I'm Paul, I'm an apostle. He doesn't pound his fist and remind them of his apostolic authority like he does in some of the other epistles, like he had to with their neighbor to the south, the church at Corinth. Why didn't Paul do that? You know, one reason I think he didn't do that, he didn't need to. He didn't need to remind them of his authority. These people loved him. He loved them. Uh, there's no strong rebukes in this letter. You get no correction for egregious sins. You get no strong correction of doctrine. It's a very doctrinal letter, but the doctrine is given by way of explanation and just fact, but not really for the purpose of teaching them where they are lacking some doctrinal error like you get in Corinthians, for instance, with tongues and with the resurrection, or where you get in Thessalonians with the day of the Lord, or Colossians with the supremacy of Christ. You just get this heart-poured-out thank-you letter to the Philippians for their involvement with him in the gospel. The book is filled with a lot of your favorite verses. I would imagine that if you're listening to this, you could probably recite several verses from the book of Philippians. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Yeah, you know that. You know that verse. Chapter 2, verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, whatever things were gained to me, these things I counted loss for the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus. Paul says, I, I forget those things which are behind. I press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 4, whatever is pure, lovely, right, think on these things. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's in chapter 4, right? Worry about nothing but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Make your request known to God. Chapter 4, verse 13, probably the most used and abused verse in all of the book of Philippians. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the verse that you see on all the athletic websites. That's the powerlifter's life verse, the Christian athlete's life verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's a verse that you would expect to see tattooed across the chest of, of uh, Mike Tyson, if you could spell. But, friends, you might be surprised to find out what that verse means and what it doesn't mean. A couple of themes in the book of Philippians. Philippians has some rich themes that are developed throughout the book. One of them is the theme of koinonia, or fellowship. Uh, we think of fellowship as being something that we enjoy when we sit down across the table and enjoy a potluck or a meal with a bunch of people. Oh, we've had fellowship. I think you're going to be surprised to find out how rich that word is and how deep that word flows and how much we're missing out on in Christian fellowship with our sort of degraded view of what fellowship is. Another theme that's developed throughout the epistle is the theme of the gospel. Uh, Paul talks about even the fellowship of the gospel. A third theme is the coming of the Lord, which is either stated or implied in every chapter of this book. A fourth major theme in the book of Philippians is that of joy, which is, is significant since Paul writes this from a prison. I doubt if I were to take you and put you in a Roman prison and keep you there for five years without a fair trial, 
having been declared innocent by at least three major rulers, and you're still waiting for a court date, and you happen to supply your own lodging in your own rented quarters, and you're under house arrest, and the accusations against you are false, and everybody knows that, and you've been denied justice for five years, I would be surprised if you were to write a letter. I, I don't think that the predominant theme of that letter that you would write would be the theme of joy and rejoicing. And yet 16 times in this epistle, the verbal or noun form of the word joy occurs in these four short chapters. Uh, you get verses like chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. If I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Look at all the references to joy there. That's, that's one of the major themes. But the supreme theme is not the theme of the gospel. It's not the theme of fellowship. It's not the return of the Lord. And it's not joy. The predominant theme of this epistle really, and I'll give it to you in one word, and you'll be, you'll be able to remember this one. It's Christ. It's the person of Christ. He is the supreme and predominant theme of this entire epistle. And not just Christ, but specifically the mind of Christ. You know, if you go back and you read the Gospels, in the Gospels you get the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ. You get his words, his teachings, his deeds, his miracles, his family, his lineage, the events of his life, and all of that. And you can read all of that, and you can put it in its historical context, and you can kind of understand a little bit about his mindset. But when you read the book of Philippians, you don't get the works of Christ. You don't get the actions of Christ. You don't get the teachings of Christ. What you get in the book of Philippians is the mind of Christ. And we ask ourselves, what does it mean to live Christ, to think Christ? What does it mean to have his mindset I want to not only be able to do what he did and, and act as he acted and behave like he behaved, but I want to have the mind of Christ. What is that mind? What is that mentality? What does it look like? When a Christian lives the mind of Christ, what does that look like? That's the question that Philippians answers. The mind of Christ. I want to offer to you an outline of the book of Philippians, and, and with this we'll close. On the shelf in my office right above my desk here and looking at it right now actually I've got 12 separate commentaries on the book of Philippians 12 commentaries each one of those commentaries offers its own its own take its own outline of the book of Philippians kind of around what it sees as the main theme I'm going to offer to you number 13 not because I don't think that theirs are good not because I don't think that theirs are right but I think that this outline will be it'll be simplified for the purpose of preaching and teaching in our congregation and easy for us to remember, and, and I know you're going to remember this. You're not going to have to write this down. You know, no pencil or paper needed, because by the time we get to the end of the book of Philippians, you are going to have this memorized, just like you did the sedition, sectarianism, and sacrilege bit in the book of Acts. You're going to have this down. And, and it's easy to remember. Here it is. Chapter 1 gives us the purpose of Christian living. Chapter 1 is the purpose of Christian living. Chapter 1, verse 21 is the key verse, to live as Christ and to die as gain. That's the purpose of Christian living. You see the purpose of it being in the gospel and the fellowship of the gospel and the advance and confirmation and defense of the gospel. And then in to living Christ and to dying as gain, that's the purpose of Christian living. Chapter 2 is the pattern for Christian living, and the Apostle Paul gives us that pattern in the first 11 verses, and that pattern is Christ. He didn't consider robbery to be equal with God, but laid aside his glories and, and came here, took upon himself the form of a bondservant, and died. The most humiliating death of all, the death of the cross. 
And it's that type of living for others. It's that type of mentality, which is the pattern that you and I are to follow. Chapter 2 then gives us Paul's pattern, and then Timothy's pattern, and then Epaphroditus' pattern. And that's chapter 2. It's the pattern for Christian living. This is what living Christ looks like. Chapter 3 is the prize of Christian living. And, oh, and, and the key verse for chapter 2 is verse 4, let this mind be, or verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The key verse for chapter 3 is, I press on toward the prize of the upward gall of God in Christ Jesus. Christ himself is the prize. It is his righteousness which is given to us on the basis of faith. That's the first half of the chapter. And in the last half of the chapter, the prize is Christ himself. In chapter 3, verse 20, we wait for our Savior from heaven, who when he is revealed will be made just like him, and the humble body that we have will be made into conformity with his body, changed into that glory, and we will have Christ himself, and that will be our prize. Chapter 4 is the peace of Christian living. Peace is all the way through chapter 4. It ends with the peace of contentment, begins with the peace of that surpasses all understanding which guards our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus, that peace of God which we have in Christ, by Christ, through Christ. So that in chapter 1, the purpose of the Christian life is Christ. Chapter 2, the pattern of the Christian life is Christ. Chapter 3, the prize of the Christian life is Christ. And chapter 4, the peace of the Christian life is, you guessed it, Christ. In fact, if you go through this book of Philippians and you read through it, you take every reference, every allusion to Jesus Christ, either in proper noun or pronoun, you will find that the Apostle Paul mentions Jesus Christ 70 times. Seven, zero. The first chapter alone, the Apostle Paul mentions Christ 19 times. That's once every two verses. This book is all about Christ. It's amazing that the Apostle Paul can somehow speak of Christ and manage to get all of this other information in, but he does. The book is all about Christ. He's our purpose. He's our pattern. He's our prize, and He's our peace. And next week we'll get into understanding more about what it means to have Christ as our purpose as we begin verse 3. My prayer for you is that this book will give you a vision of Jesus Christ that you have never seen before and give you an understanding of what it means to live Christ. Because the key verse for the whole book of Philippians is chapter 1, verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Thanks for joining us for this time. Let's pray together. Father, I do pray for this book as we study it, that you would be glorified and honored through the exposition of these words. Give us an understanding as a congregation, as a people, of your grace, of your goodness, of your love for us. Help us to see Christ. Help us to see him clearly. And help us to know what it means to live him and to have him as our purpose, our pattern, our prize, and our peace. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, Thank you for listening.